The rest of us this morning are going to be in Romans chapter 11. So if you have a Bible, you want to find Romans 11. If you need a page number because you just received a Bible this morning, I believe it's page 811. And this morning we're going to be talking about, if you would like a sermon title, it will be Fighting Christian Anti-Semitism. Fighting Christian Anti-Semitism. If I give you a title like that, you may be thinking that has nothing to do with me. Um, Just wait. (laughs) I do wonder what your attitude is like regarding Israelites. I do wonder what your attitude is like regarding Jewish people. I wonder what your attitude would be like if you were to spend a significant amount of time surrounded by Jewish people, what your attitude would be like. If you were a Gentile, most of you, if not all of you, are Gentiles. For me, I guess this is confession time and honesty time, it has meant seeing blatant hypocrisy by religious leaders. It has meant witnessing rank legalism from food laws to Sabbath practices where once they were over, it was time to sin it up. It has meant larger-than-life traditionalism. Not to mention the fact that, and I quote, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God. Romans 11, verse 28. In my own life, I went from loving and enjoying listening to Modest Yahoo, the Jewish reggae singer, to wondering if I could ever listen to any kind of Jewish music again in my life. For me personally, surrounded by Jewish people, especially Jewish religious leaders, I found myself thinking, I don't want anything whatsoever to do with Jews. I don't want to be like them. I don't want to be with them. Which easily then leads to I'm above them. I am better than them. Which is what Romans 11, verse 11 to 24 deals with. It deals with our sense of pride that we may harbor as Gentiles. Our sense of anti-Jewish sentiment that we probably have if we're around Jewish people very much. As we are Christians and we know that they by and large have rejected Jesus as Messiah. And so it's almost natural for us to have a bad attitude. But then it goes further and we look down at them and we feel a sense of spiritual pride. And Romans 11, 11 to 24 deals with us there. And that's what we'll look at this morning. You don't really need much of an outline this morning for those verses. He begins with a question, gives an answer, then he talks about um, some positive things regarding Israel, and then he gives an illustration. So if you'd like to have an outline, there will be three points. And we'll start with the Israel question. Beginning in verse 11, read there with me, where it says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? They mean being Israel here clearly. Paul is saying, I know that they've rejected by and large Jesus as Messiah. That means they stumbled, right? 
To quote 1 Corinthians 1.23, Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews. 1 Peter 2.8, Christ is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Most certainly, the Jews, by and large, stumbled over Christ. They have rejected Christ. And so Paul's question, because he knows you're either going to ask it, or people are asking it at the, in the Roman church, or it should be asked by now in the development of Romans. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? Is it a permanent thing? Did they crash and burn permanently? Is there no hope? And he gives the answer in verse 11. You see it right there. By no means. As strong as he can, using that same by no means that he's used it in the past, Just as sure as you shouldn't, because you're a Christian, now live in sin, Romans 6, just as sure as that is outlandish and unthinkable. It is outlandish and unthinkable for you or for me to conclude that they've stumbled in order that they might fall. So, put it another way, for us to think that the the blindness over Israel's eyes is permanent is to think the wrong thing. To think that God has once and for all, forever washed his hands of Israel is for you to need to rethink your theological system. By no means, he says. So we move to number two, a pro-Israel explanation to what he says. He gives a strong by no means, but then he gives a pro-Israel explanation in verses 11 to 15. Let's start working our way through it. Rather, through their trespass, through Israel's trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So far, so good, right? You understand that? I understand that. Do you know what God has done? Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, and that's us by and large, so we see that as a good thing, so as to make Israel jealous, and see, now we're already getting hints of there's still going to be something for national Israel. We're rejoicing that we can be saved because God has, by, uh, uh, by through working providentially through Israel's rejection, is now blessing us as non-Jews, but He's saying it is to make them jealous. There's, there's something coming there. Verse 12 says, Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for For the Gentiles, and by the way, that helps us to interpret what he means by world, right? He's using this parallel kind of statement. Riches for the world, riches for the Gentiles. He means the same thing. That's what he means by world there. He means Gentiles. He means the non-Jewish part of the planet, and that would be everyone uh, would be Gentiles or world. He does that quite often. Now we know what he means. But then he says at the end, how much more will their full inclusion be mean? Which assumes there's going to be Full inclusion, which assumes there's some kind of future plan for Israel. It most certainly does. He's making some very pro-Israel kinds of statements here. And so we might be tempted to look down on them. We might be tempted to be anti-Semitic. After all, they rejected Jesus as Messiah. But he's saying, hey, look, through doing that, and and they're accountable for it, read the early chapters of the book of Acts. But make no mistake about it, he's going to use that for our benefit. That right there makes me think I probably shouldn't be anti-Semitic. And it's also eventually going to be something positive for them as a people. 
not as individuals who rejected their accountable, but as a people. How much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, there's a lot of things in Romans 11 that are kind of hard to understand, but how are you doing so far? I suspect you're doing well. You just read it and you follow the flow of things and it makes a lot of sense. He's going to get deeper into challenging us as Gentiles for, for, for looking down on Jews. But he makes the point once and again and again and multiple times that there is a plan for them, so be careful about how you think about them. And he's also going to trace it way back to the beginning, how he started dealing with them. Romans 11 isn't very hard to understand. It might raise a lot of issues that are difficult, but it's not really very hard to understand. Verse 13 then, maybe just one more footnote about that. I found myself needing less commentaries than I've ever needed ever in all of these 50-some weeks we've been in Romans so far. I just didn't really find a big need because you just read it and I guess it means what it says. I mean, I always want to take that approach, but sometimes it's just really difficult. And Romans 11 really isn't. It really isn't. Verse 13 then says, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. That's probably most of us, probably because we have a tendency to look down on the Jews. He's, he's, he's calling us out. Verse 13 then says, Inasmuch as then I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Now I think he's setting us up. If I could just stop one more time and interrupt for a second. The, in light of verse 13, there's, he's, I'm talking to you Gentiles. How about that? How about if I were to just name, select out a group of you? Well, that's what he does in the Roman church. Maybe most of them. He, he calls out a certain group and he's going to address them. And he makes it clear that he's an apostle to the Gentiles. There, there's no accusing Paul and saying, well, Paul, you're pro-Israel because you're a Jew. I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. What do you think Jesus Christ has called me to do in my life? In my life, I am Gentile-focused. I've been called to minister to the Gentiles. I'm going to address you. And he's saying, and I've been called by God to minister to you. And so don't think that I'm out of balance because of my ethnic background. And I magnify my ministry. I make it my everything. I pour my heart into that ministry that God has given me. But then rather interestingly, in verse 14 it says, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. How about that? for double motives. That's the best kind of double motives. We can't say he had bad motives, but we can't say he had a single motive. He actually had double motives. I pour my life into my ministry that God through His Gospel might save Gentiles. That's what I've been called by God to do. Read about it in the book of Acts. But I need to let you in on a little secret. Psst. <laughs> I have a secondary motive. And that is, I want that ministry to Gentiles to be so magnified and so big and amazing, the power of God unto salvation, even to save Gentiles, the spiritually unclean, that the Jews see it, that they see it, and they're jealous. And they're jealous, and maybe God would use it to save some of them. That's a good double motive, don't you think? I like that kind of double motive. 
Verse 15 then says, For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, we already know what he means by world. He's not preaching universalism. Reconciliation of the world, verses 12 and 13, it's referring to Gentiles, non-Jews. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? You know, you see how God works is they're unfaithful and they reject Christ and they're accountable for that. Clearly, read Peter's sermon at the beginning of Acts. But at the same time, you know, God is using that and God is using that for our benefit, for reconciliation. But as sure as that's true, he ends where we were beginning earlier. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Which assumes there's going to be acceptance. Otherwise, what he's saying doesn't even make sense. What will that mean? That will mean something even greater. You know, we've witnessed, we've witnessed something staggering to the mind that God would be the Savior of the world, not just Jews. That is mind-blowing. But now stop and think how He actually, ultimately, in the end, is going to bring about, as the Word uses, acceptance, their acceptance, Jewish acceptance, meaning life from the dead. That's even big and more staggering. What a great and amazing saving God this is. We're supposed to be impressed with God and God's saving ability. And we're not getting there yet, but at the end of 11, he just erupts in praise to God for his amazing wisdom that, th- that, that God would be such a God as this. Use their disobedience for our benefit and then use that to make them jealous and then they accept. I, who who would have thunk it up? And his mind is just staggered at the end of Romans 11, praising this amazing, amazing God. We never would have come up with it this way. It wouldn't have been our plan. There's some debate about what the end of verse 15 means. Life from the dead. Is it their life from the dead? Well, yeah, when they accept, it will be their life from the dead spiritually. Is it referring to ultimate resurrection when Israelites are resurrected? That will be amazing too. Is it referring to something else? I wouldn't die on any of those hills. It means life from the dead. How about that? Um, (laughs) Sometimes that phrase is used more figuratively uh, from new spiritual life from the dead. Sometimes it's used literally for resurrection. Both are going to be true and both are amazing. His point is we should be amazed that God is going to work in and through or for the nation of Israel, and he'll bring about life. And won't that be amazing that he's going to do that? That's really his point, and that's what we should see for significance, I think. It's going to happen, and it's going to be great. I'm tempted at this point in time in Romans 11 to start listening to Jewish music again. I'm not fully convinced, maybe by the end of the sermon. God is a saving God. He has a plan for them. Don't be prideful. He's really going to emphasize that more in just a moment. But before we progress any further, I I do want to stop and go back to verse 14 and maybe do a little pastoral work with you and together. Would you please re-look at verse 14? In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them, would you just think about whether or not you can even imagine, let alone know a Jewish person that would ever be jealous of anything that happens in, in the church today? 
I mean, can you even fathom that? I think it's kind of hard to think about. I think it's even harder to think about because so many times the church, the Bible-believing church, is so busy having it be all about anything other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified, His perfect atonement, His perfect redemption. Why would the Jews be interested? Oh, come to church. We have contemporary music. Oh, wow, man. So do we, and I'm a Jew. Come to church. We don't have all of your traditions. Yeah, right. We just have different ones. Come to church and be freed from legalism. I think it's good for us to stop and consider what, what would be appealing to Jewish people. I realize that God has to open their eyes and God has to work in their hearts, but if God is going to open their eyes, what is He going to open their eyes to? Style? I mean, really, what would be the appeal to make Jewish people jealous? What don't they have that they need that we're supposed to be offering to all people? Total, lasting complete, once and for all, forgiveness of sins because of the perfect atoning death of the spotless Lamb, the ultimate Passover Lamb that is never, ever, 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 ever to be repeated again. What would make them jealous is a perfect atonement. What would make them jealous is a perfect atonement, a perfect Savior And that's what we're supposed to be about. We're supposed to be what the Apostle Paul modeled his whole ministry. I know nothing among you except Jesus Christ crucified. That's what we're supposed to be as a local church. That's what churches are supposed to be. And that's what would ultimately appeal to them. It's what ultimately appeals to anyone. S. Lewis Johnson is one of my favorite Bible teachers. He's in heaven now. But listen to what he said about this. The necessity of divine redemption through a sacrifice in blood is missing from the note of modern preaching. And with it, the gratitude and the thanksgiving of men for deliverance from the bondage of sin. Thus, why should Israel be jealous of the church? But if we return to the glorious gospel and to the thankful salvation that it brings, we shall see provocation or provoking to jealousy and the salvation of Israel. I like that. What we want to be and do as a church is what a church is always supposed to be and do, and that is to not be ashamed of the gospel. Romans 1.16, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and, and also to the Greek, and, and, and to preach this and to proclaim it and then to be so thrilled about it, as S. Lewis Johnson is saying, not using the word thrilled, that we would have such joy because we know that we are forgiven that we have been justified because of the work of Christ and it means everything to us. And it would be so magnified that the Jews would see it. And they would see that they don't have that. When God draws Israel to Himself, make no mistake about it, He's going to use those means. It's not going to be about something else. It's going to be by a faithful church that is committed to preaching the gospel. 
This makes me want to have, have reformation in the church. It makes us want to have revival in the church, that we would, we would be so committed to the gospel, not only by proclaiming it, not only by teaching it and preaching it to believers and unbelievers, but it would also give us such great joy knowing that we have been atoned for, our sin has been taken care of, that, that we have joy and it shows and it's clear and it's not made up or fake or based upon the wrong things that we would not be a dead church. That's, that's pastorally making my heart just want to beat out of my chest to want to learn from this and this passage. Maybe we could even apply it to non-Jews. Just going a little step outside. You know, do, you, do you know any unbelievers who, who ever say, what, what, whatever it is you have, I want that, I need that. Sadly, too many times they're just making fun of us. And sadly, too many times we ought to be made fun of. I can't think of one example of someone I know that, having heard the gospel multiple times about a perfect atonement, a perfect, amazing, spotless lamb, and having watched believers for years and watched the joy in their life, did come and say, what you have is what I need. I say we pray for lots of that. I say we pray for lots of that. Let's move on now to the third phase in this section. He gives a couple of illustrations or multiple illustrations, and they're all pro-Israel illustrations. He's really going to kind of center in on our proneness to being anti-Jewish. He gives a couple in verse 16. Look there with me if you would. If the, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. That's his opening two illustrations. He's borrowing from the Old Testament. You're going to go and give your best to God. You're going to go and you're going to give the first fruits. And if you give off the top for God, that, that, that sanctifies all the other. You're going to give your best to God, the, the, the remaining 90% or whatever it is you want to choose or whatever he, it is He mandates. It's all blessed by God. And then He uses the tree illustration. If the root is holy, so are the branches. You can tell how the tree is going to be based upon its root system. It's this simple analogy that he gives. I couldn't find any... He, he doesn't spell it out here, but it does pose the question, who's he talking about? What is he talking about? It seems that based upon the flow and what he's going to get to just in a few moments in the remaining verses, and I really couldn't find any commentators that would disagree with this, He's going back to the beginning of Israel. If you're talking about the first fruits, you're going back to the beginning of Israel. If you're talking about the, in this particular text, you're talking about the root, you're talking about the beginning of Israel. And if that's the case, and I think most people think that it is the case, if you want to put a name to it, the name is Abraham. If you consider way back when, when God chose to call a people 
was with Abraham. Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12. Why don't you go ahead and turn there? He seems to be here asking the, the, the Gentile church members like you and like me to think back on how it began. Well, it began with God. Abraham wasn't special. As a matter of fact, he, he absolutely wasn't special. This was God's doing, but make no mistake about it. God chose to do what He chose to do in blessing the whole world through a promise made to Abraham who would ultimately find fulfillment. That would ultimately find fulfillment in Christ. Even Christ, because we might say, wait a minute, I'm not tied to Abraham. I'm tied to Jesus. Appreciate the zeal. <laughs> I'm with you. But actually, by being tied to Jesus, you're tied to Abraham. And it does go back to that very beginning promise. Not the very beginning promise. That would be in Genesis chapter 3. But this, this is Israel kind of promise in chapter 12 of Genesis. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. God's promise to Abraham. Verse 3 says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here's really what I wanted you to see. That's at the end of verse 3. And in you all the families, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So even way back then, even though it's an Israel kind of thing, it was inclusive of even Gentiles. And that was a good and right first fruits kind of promise. And no Gentile should disagree with that, that this was good and this was right and this was hopeful for us. Galatians 3.8 cites the same passage and it says, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and nations, the world, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you, Abraham, shall all the nations be blessed. And Galatians is all about arguing for this being in Christ, in Jesus. So, the first fruits were not Gentile fruits. The root is not a Gentile root. It's Jewish. It's Jewish to the core. And even Christ is going to come from that promise, or He's going to be the fulfillment of that promise. It's very, very Jewish. And that illustration he gives is a very Jewish illustration. In fact, both of those illustrations are. Because God in His sovereignty has chosen to begin with Israel, to work through Israel. And even our blessing, fellow Mr. and Mrs. Gentile, is connected to that. Remember Romans 9, verse 4? They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and practices. To them belong the patriarchs, like Abraham, right? And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Remember, remember that this whole thing started as something Jewish. And now he's going to further illustrate in Romans 11. A similar illustration from the world of trees. Look at verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. I don't know, did you feel the sting? 
the early Christians would have felt the sting. That, that one kind of burns. In 17, you, although a wild olive shoot, that's pretty insulting. A, a wild olive shoot is, is like a weed. Maybe in our culture, we're talking about an apple tree versus a crab apple tree. Um, I'm talking to you Gentiles, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Crabby Appleton. <laughs> you know? This is not a good time to be prideful. <laughs> if you're a Gentile, pride ought not be in your vocabulary. Um, the, the, the whole reason you're experiencing the blessing of God has to do with Israel, who we want to look down on so many times. Don't be arrogant. Ephesians 2.12 says Gentiles are strangers to the covenants of promise. Ephesians 2.19, strangers and aliens. You're an outsider. It's by the sovereign grace of God, even using their sinfulness, that you got grafted in. And then he's going to anticipate our stubbornness in verse 19, or theirs. Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. You know, huffy puffy, I expect it. I know it's coming. You're going to say, yeah, but they were broken off by God. God judges. And He grafted me in. <sighs> you know? <laughs> Looking down at the Jews. Verse 20, that is true. They were broken off. Reminder time, because of their unbelief. And you stand fast through faith. Do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. This is great because He's putting us in our place. Being proud Christians, looking down on Jewish unbelievers, He's going, stop! Don't do that! This is, this is totally out of line. Completely out of line. Don't, don't go there. You should be in awe, not proud. Remember what God did to Israel. They, here's what happened. They got to the point where they, were, uh, they went from, as a people, trusting in God for what He had done. Right? That's grace. That's why He emphasizes faith. Two, prideful for who they were. You see the huge difference. There's a huge difference. When it's by faith, you see what someone else has accomplished for you and you're trusting in their provision. And that's how it is when it comes to salvation, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Abraham's the example. And then all of a sudden, it can get to that place where you think somehow that you're special because of who you are not because of what someone else has done for you. And now you've perverted the gospel. Now you don't get it. You're clueless. You don't have the first understanding of things. And he's saying then in verse 21, if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. You're busy looking down your Gentile nose at Israel. You better remember what's happened to them. It might happen to you. It might happen to you. They weren't spared. You won't be either. 
you are not better. And when we think we are better, we've just revealed, we've shown our cards. We've revealed that we don't understand. We don't understand the gospel. Even when God chose the nation of Israel as a nation, it wasn't because there was a lot of them. It wasn't because they were better. It was to show his power. So we get to that point where we're looking down at other people because they're not as good as us. We're showing our cards. We don't even understand the gospel. We don't even understand the gospel. Well, there's even more in verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Ooh, I want to preach a whole sermon just on that statement. That says a lot about the whole Bible. Note the kindness. He saves by faith based upon His work and the severity of God. If you don't acknowledge that, you won't be spared. Then he says, severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Verse 22 is kind of a doozy, don't you think? Better be careful. You're treading on thin ice. You're starting to sound like somebody who's not even a believer when you look down on the Jews for their unbelief, for their hypocrisy. Now, verse 22 might meddle with your theology a little bit, at least at first, if you haven't thought it through much, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. You might say, well, what... What, what, what about once saved, always saved? Where is that verse either, anyway, by the way? I believe in once saved, always saved. Because I believe Romans 8. He's not contradicting that here. But if we're going to just use that phrase, once saved, always saved, yeah, once saved, always saved. When you start thinking in your mind that you are better than other people, you're starting to show that you don't even understand salvation. You don't even understand the gospel. So I guess it would make sense that you, if you follow through on that, you're not going to persevere because you're, 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 you're not saved. You don't understand. You don't even understand the gospel. And I realize we could say, yeah, but w- w- what about the fact that I signed a card? Well, he doesn't talk about that here but in my last church I was treasurer you and Judas right got to think about this stuff but I know that I'm a Christian I'm just anti-semitic because you know those Jews they're really messed up we're messed up That's why we need the gospel. That's what Romans has been all about. And so you just have to be careful of how you look at other people, look down on them. I remember growing up seeing a silly little song, If You're Saved Then You Know It. If you're saved then you know it, stomp your foot, you know. know, I'm like the Mr. Ed, give us a... (laughs) If you're saved then you know it, then your life will surely show it. Actually, sounds a lot like things Jesus would say. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Or continue in kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. You just reveal that you're 
Life doesn't show it because you're not saved. I wasn't going to talk about that song. It's not in my notes, but if you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. Actually, if you're saved, your life will surely show it. That doesn't sound right. (laughs) Anyway, sorry to spoil your song. Um, I won't sing anymore, I promise. John Murray is probably the most respected commentator that I know of in the book of Romans. And uh, he says this about this passage, just so you don't think I'm making things up and I'm all alone. There is no security in the bond of the gospel apart from perseverance. God's saving embrace and endurance are correlative. God's embrace, salvation, and God's endurance in a person's life go together. Would be the idea. And many would echo those words of John Murray. And by the way, in case I forget and don't mention it later, interestingly enough, John Murray has also, I think, been in essential agreement with the way I've been teaching Romans 11 today, which is important because John Murray comes from a different theological school than I come from. We have some very big differences theologically, and John Murray would say this is about national Israel and a future for them. I believe that's true. Interesting. Well, let's move on now to verse 23 and get things wrapped up. And even they if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, or if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? It's a great verse because it just puts us in our place. Which is easier for God to do? Well, God can do whatever He wants. I know that. But just from a human perspective, which makes more sense? God took the olive tree and He grafted in the weeds. Well, that can be done, but that's hard to do. And why would you do it? Unless you're God, who's gracious. But if he can do that, certainly he can take a cut-off branch that actually is a legitimate olive branch and graft that back in, and that is way easier because it matches, it fits. And so once again, his appeal to us is, be humble, Mr. and Mrs. Gentile Christian. Don't cop an attitude about those Israelites or those Jews that you know who reject Jesus. God has a plan for the nation of Israel to one day see Christ for His righteousness and to embrace Him by faith. And we can be excited about that. Right now they're spiritually bankrupt, but they will see Christ for His perfect riches, a la Romans chapter 3, and embrace Him. And I'm back to listening to Modest Yahoo. <laughs> having a different and better attitude, though they currently are enemies of the gospel, a better attitude because ultimately my attitude is about God who can do whatever He wants to do. And if He's going to do this, He's a pretty amazing God. And that's what we'll look at next time. So, I challenge you about how you think about salvation and how that causes you to think about other people 
not being saved. And then specifically about how you think about Israel in their current state of unbelief. What you think about their future, I think, has a lot to do with what you think about God and His ability to do the easy grafting. And God can do the hard things, so certainly He can do the easy things. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this morning and time we have in Your Word looking at these things that have to do not with us, but with the nation of Israel and how You will keep Your promises according to Your covenant. You are a covenant-keeping God. And we have confidence that you will keep your covenant. But Lord, it does have a lot to do with us on the other hand. It has to do with our attitude. It has to do with even our humility, realizing that we don't even belong. But according to your sovereignty, you have chosen to include the nations, the Gentiles, the world. And so may we, of all people, be humble people, who are thankful. May we of all people be people who understand the gospel that none of us are deserving. And Lord, may that show in our lives. In Jesus' name.